This is Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Dr. Neil Bradbury on assassination by poison. So if you think of a radio where you have a volume control and you can either turn it down or turn it up, what Novichok does is just amplifies the signal like crazy. So the volume of signal going onto the various end organs gets higher and higher. They came up with a, a rather intriguing way of getting the poison into Markov. And this was an umbrella. You could rub polonium on your body all day long and the radiation would not get into your body. The skin is thick enough to prevent any damage from getting in. And that's why it had to be given in a cup of tea so that Linfinenko would actually get it into his body. Neil, welcome to Chatter. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I believe that you are the first physiologist, not only on the Chatter podcast, but on any of the podcasts in the Lawfare National Security family. Uh, Describe your work and how you got into it. I started uh, working as a student, uh, going to biochemistry classes. I have uh, degrees in biochemistry and decided that I was really interested in science and wanted to continue with a career in science. And so moved up through the ranks of uh, academia. And now I spend my time roughly split between teaching medical students and science students and Mm -hmm. also conducting my own research on cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And your specialty is in genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis, correct? Yes, it is. I've been studying cystic fibrosis for many years now. Uh, When I first started looking at cystic fibrosis, the life expectancy of a patient was roughly five to seven years. Um, There's been tremendous uh, advances, not only in the uh, care of CF patients, but also in therapies. And now most patients uh, are living well into their late 40s. So tremendous advancements. Patients are doing really quite well now. And pardon my ignorance here, but for cystic fibrosis compared to similar conditions, has that progress and that improvement in the past 20, 30 years has that been been greater than or less than advances made in treating uh, similar conditions? It's probably fairly similar. One of the things that's always difficult is that this obviously is a genetic disease, and so it's something that's there all the time. It's not like a, a flu or an infection that you get that you can get rid of. Once you are born with the condition, you have it for the rest of your life. Hopefully, at some point, uh, there are studies trying to do gene therapy to correct the genetic information in, in the cells. But at the moment, it's, uh, there are drugs out there that seem to be working really well. And those have really only been on the market within the last few years. I'm a bit afraid to ask this, but I'm going to anyway. For someone who has been working on and treating genetic diseases, who has been involved in some of these advances in cystic fibrosis. What drives your interest in poisons? 
That's an interesting question. I think there were probably two events that really sparked my interest. Uh, The first, when I was growing up um, in the UK, was being exposed to the Markov case, which just seemed uh, to a schoolboy um, like it was out of a James Bond novel. We will will get to the Markov case later, but I just want to ask, you were you were made aware of this as a schoolboy because the Markov case is something I learned in CIA training. It's not something that was taught in elementary schools here in the states. Uh, it certainly wasn't taught in school, uh, but it was certainly on the news uh, when I was growing up. Okay, uh, it was headline news uh, for many many weeks. Mm-hmm. And that kind of started in the back of my mind. I was always interested in Agatha Christie and her poisons and mystery novels. And that was one of the things I found fascinating when I finally got to university and started studying biochemistry and studying various chemicals that are used by the body. And one particular class that I was in, the professor was talking about a chemical called boncrecic acid which is something I'd never heard of before and most people have never heard of. And he was going over exactly what the effects of this were on a cell and the body in general. And I started thinking, I wonder if that could be used to commit a murder. Uh, Would anybody be able to detect what had caused the death? I hasten to add that I never put that into practice, but it started a chain of thinking in my mind that uh, eventually worked itself out in writing this book. I had a not entirely dissimilar first interest in poisons. I remember at some point, perhaps 10 or 11 years old, uh, it was not news about the Markov assassination, which we'll get to. It was a song by the police from the UK a song on the Synchronicity album as a bonus track on my old cassette tape called Murder by Numbers. And in that song, Sting sings something that actually sounds quite familiar in a couple of ways after after reading your new book about poisons, where he talks about there isn't really any need for bloodshed, that you can do it with a little more finesse by slipping a tablet into someone's coffee and avoiding a whole lot of mess. And then in the second verse, he talks about the fact that once you've gotten past your first murder by poisoning, that in fact, it becomes easier that you find your conscience bothers you much less. And I remember hearing this as a, as a child and thinking, what a horrible song. And looking over my shoulders to see if my parents were watching me and having this guilty conscience of the fact of hearing a well-crafted song that was enjoyable to listen to that was about something so absolutely horrific. And like you, I never put it into practice, but I always found it interesting that here's someone making a, it wasn't a pop hit, but making a song on one of the most popular albums of a decade um, explicitly about murdering somebody with poison. Uh, It's definitely in the cultural consciousness, isn't it? From Agatha Christie to Sherlock Holmes to uh, obviously pop rock songs. Poisoning is something that is that is out there in our cultural environment. It is. It's, and it's obviously something that's been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years. There are clear documentations of poisons way back to the Egyptians, 
coming up through the Roman times to the Renaissance, all the way up to present day. Uh, you mentioned the different uh, foods that people have put poisons in. And it's remarkable how many different means of poisoning have been used from putting poisons in cakes to cocktails to coffee and tea. Um, even I, I noticed that uh, one of the CIA plots to kill Castro involved uh, trying to put poison in his chocolate milkshake. So there have been lots of vehicles for food and drink to try and get poisons into the body. And one of the cases that I know you want to discuss with Litvinenko included poison putting into a pot of tea, which I think is probably one of the things that is quintessentially British in terms of uh, means of poisoning someone. Absolutely. Be before we get into some of these cases, there's one, perhaps the most famous um, poison, I, I guess we would call it, um, that, that you don't discuss. But when people think, uh, people with a classical education certainly think of uh, a famous poisoning, they will go back to the story of Socrates and hemlock. And, and I'm wondering, you know, is that something that in your experience was ever used as a poison to assassinate instead of somebody administering it to themselves? I'm not really aware of anybody that was deliberately poisoned with hemlock. Uh, it's certainly, as with many of the poisonous plants, they do grow uh, quite easily um, throughout the country. And there are certainly accidental uh, exposures to these drugs. But certainly, as you mentioned, hemlock um, and Socrates is a classic example. In that case, though, that was a self-administered poison uh, that was chosen by Socrates as a way for him to uh, go about um, killing himself as a means of dealing with the execution that he was uh, given. Uh, but in terms of other things, I'm not really aware of anybody that's deliberately gone out to kill with hemlock. Before we go on, we probably should put out some disclaimers and clarifications here. And I'll borrow from some words in your own new book, A Taste for Poison, when you say that the following information is purely for educational purposes only and is not intended to give the advantages or disadvantages for the use of any particular poison in the commission of murder. Um, I would imagine that the lawyers at your publisher might have had something to do with that note, but I think it's also just good ethics to remind people of something that you're very clear about when you speak and write about these issues, that despite the toxic and even lethal effects of some of these chemicals that we will be talking about, the chemicals themselves are neither intrinsically good or bad. It's, it's the uses to which they are put that are good or bad. It's about the people, the killers who use them, that we should reserve our judgments rather than reserving our judgments for the, the poisons themselves. And as we'll discuss, some of these chemicals that do the most horrific things to the human body can actually be helpful in other circumstances, um, which I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, to start off, define for us poison. What, what is a poison and what isn't a poison? And how is it, is it, is there a significant difference between the term poison and the term toxin? There really isn't a fundamental difference between them. 
both of them impact the normal workings of a cell. Cell is a massive chemical factory carrying out thousands of different chemical reactions every second. And poisons really interfere with that. They can interfere either by masquerading as something that should normally be there, or they can just wreak havoc by doing things that a cell is not normally exposed to at all. So a classic example would be something like thallium, which has been used several times uh, to commit murder. That actually masquerades as another element that's normally used in the body, potassium, which is a critical component of every cell in the body. Thallium pretends to be potassium, but it can't perform the same functions as potassium. And so it gets into the chemical reactions, but can't fully work them out. And so the cell grinds to a halt. And that's how thallium kills, by pretending to be something it's not. And have you found that in general, not in every specific case, that because of that, chemical interaction at the the cellular level that most of these poisons behave similarly in mammals. Um, And that's why there's so much testing on pigs and and other animals. Um, There may be subtle differences here and there, but do you find that overall, because the chemical processes are so similar that it's it's not a specific human condition for most of these poisons? Some of the poisons are really specific to humans. Animals do have slightly different biochemistry. Most people are probably familiar with the fact that whilst humans can consume chocolate quite easily, it's not good for dogs. Right. And that's because they have slightly different uh, biochemistry. Uh, Similarly, chickens, for example, are fairly resistant to arsenic uh, and cyanide, uh, whereas the same amount exposed uh, given to a human would be lethal. So there are some differences. Um, Pigs, as you mentioned, do have a lot of similarities with humans, particularly their circulation, um, and are roughly the same size as a human. And pigs have been often used as a surrogate for humans. But it's not true to say that everything tested and lethal on a human would be lethal in an animal. And I mentioned one particular story of the Laboratory One that was part of the KGB's testing um, for poisons, that the head of Laboratory One at the time was complaining to Stalin that not all of the poisons that they were using were really working out in animals and that he was stumped because he couldn't get availability of humans to try them on. To which point Stalin simply replied, who's stopping you? Oof. So uh, unfortunately, that was uh, one of the things that they did do in Laboratory One was using political prisoners and also prisoners of war that were captured. They did do testing on them unfortunately, because there was some differences between humans and animals. And obviously, testing poisons on humans is not something that is acceptable at all. Right. Well, that, that story about Stalin really highlights the fact that um, the point that you make, that responsibility for atrocities with these chemicals lie with the killers who use them. And he's a particularly evil case of that. I'm fascinated by the fact that you say chickens have uh, more, I don't know if the word would be resistance, but are less susceptible to poisoning 
by arsenic and cyanide. Do we have any any information to tell us whether that is an evolutionary advantage? Is that something that due to something in the millions of years of chickens evolution that there, there has been a, a, a selected difference for that? Or is it epiphenomenal to other elements of natural selection? Well, cyanide actually is something that humans as well can break down. We do have an ability to break down a small amount of cyanide every day in our body. Most of us have probably even ingested cyanide in our life. They are in apple seeds, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, The almonds contain cyanide. So a small amount that we can ingest can be dealt with by the body. It's not really that nasty. It's only when the levels build up when you give a, a sufficient dose to kill. It's probably interesting to note that until recently, chickens were actually fed arsenic. It was part of the food supply. And that was only stopped a few years ago. Arsenic does seem to be required not only in chickens, but also in our bodies as well in very minute amounts. And experiments where animals have been placed upon a completely arsenic-free diet don't actually seem to do very well. Exactly why we have to have a small amount of arsenic in our diet is not really clear. No one understands why that's the case, but it certainly seems that we do actually have to have just a little bit of arsenic every day. That's fascinating. Walk us through, generically, the the routes, and there are only a few of them, uh, the routes for delivery of a poison. How How in the human body can a poison be delivered to a person in a way that could, depending on the the biochemistry involved, could lead to a, a lethal result? The main ways in which we can get poisons into the body, obviously one we've mentioned so far is ingesting. So either putting poisons into food or into drink and taking them that way. Other poisons will be inhaled, so gaseous poisons, Um, would just be breathed in. Another way is getting them in through the skin through absorption. So some poisons will get just absorbed straight through the skin. And finally, they, they can be injected. And the way in which poisons work and how fast they work really depends upon the route of entry. So something like ricin, for example, Um, is very effective when it's injected into the body. But because ricin is actually a protein, if it's ingested, the normal actions of the stomach and the digestive processes can start to break it down. And so ingesting ricin is not as lethal in the same way as being injected. You have to take a lot more ricin um, in food compared to being injected. Uh, Of course, if you take rice in powder that's been aerosolized and breathe it in, then it does get more rapidly taken up by the body. Mm -hmm. So depending upon the poison and what the the root is, you either need more or less poison. In the first chapter, I mentioned insulin, uh, which is not something that people would initially think of as a poison. No, not at all. Um, But that can only be uh, taken by injection. 
if you try to ingest insulin, it gets broken down immediately by the body. So you mm -hmm. can't take it. It can only be administered through an injection. Uh, other things really can get in pretty easily either through ingestion or breathing them in. Obviously, gases, um, chlorine, I, I mentioned in the book, and the lot of the nerve gases, the sarin, the VX gas, would obviously be taken in a lot by breathing them in, getting them into the airways. But they can also be absorbed by the small amount of fluid that's in the eyes and the mouth through the mucous membranes of the nose can be absorbed that way as well. So it really depends a lot on the poison as to what is the most efficient route of getting it into the body. And some ways are better than others for efficiency, uh, because obviously if you're going to murder someone with a poison, you really think about using a small amount as possible mm -hmm. um, so to avoid detection. And therefore, you have to think about how you're going to get that small amount into the body to wreak havoc. I think that's a, a fascinating point because you pointed out apple seeds and ricin, that in theory, you could murder someone with apple seeds because of the ricin, but it would take a massive amount of apple seeds, uh, something that probably could not be ingested in that volume to get the required amount. Similarly, bananas. And uh, I'm trying to remember what it is in bananas, but there's something in bananas that actually can kill you in enough yes. doses. So it's potassium, potassium. that's in bananas. Yeah, um, yeah you, you would need to eat uh, 400 bananas all in one sitting uh, to be able to <laughs> achieve any problems with potassium levels getting into the body. That's quite a challenge, although I don't know if you've seen this in the time since you've been in the States, but the uh, annual hot dog eating competitions when they have people eat as many hot dogs as they can in one sitting. And I have a feeling that Joey Chestnut could probably get close to 400 bananas in one sitting. So we'll recommend against I that. I saw his record was 147 hot dogs. Oh, geez. which uh, I would think a banana yeah. would go down easier, but I'm not certain of that. And I'm not about to try. It's uh, just going back to apple seeds for a second. Mm -hmm. There was uh, an interesting criminal case in, in England um, a couple of hundred years ago where the defense was arguing that the victim had actually committed suicide by eating so many apples that the seeds had actually given them cyanide poisoning. It turns out, obviously, again, that it would be several hundred apples at a time. And the jury didn't buy that for a second. But the defense lawyer, who was known as Sir William Fitzroy, ended up with the nickname of Appleseeds Kelly after that uh, <laughs> failed defense of the killer who, who was uh, hanged um, and was... Also, interestingly, one of the first people who was actually arrested because of the newly uh, invented telegraph system, mm. um, they, they had tried to escape by getting on a train back to London, okay. but somebody had seen them and used the new telegraph system to telegraph ahead to the London police to inform them that uh, a killer was about to uh, get off a train in London. And he was arrested, tried for killing with cyanide, uh, which in this case he'd placed in a bottle of beer and given to his mistress. Mm. The defense argued that she'd just eaten a lot of apples and it died from cyanide that way. But Oof. 
the jury didn't buy it for a second. And presumably without the telegraph, this is a time when the, if the train would have gotten to London ahead of any other means of communication, this he would have, would have just blended into the crowd. Nobody would have ever have found him. Wow. Um, wow. Well, I want to focus, Neil, on a, a few cases in particular that, that you talk about. And what's remarkable about your telling of these cases is you talk about not only the the human element of the cases, the people involved, the motivations behind their actions, but also you break down the the biochemistry. You explain exactly how something works and what it does to the human body. And, and I'd like to hit both of those in, in each of these cases. Uh, first, many of our listeners will be familiar with the name Sergei Skripal and even the chemical named Novichok that, that poisoned him. But something else called atropine plays a role here. And let's build up to that. So we'll go back a step to the plant family that includes potatoes, chili peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, all eaten daily by hundreds of millions of people. But that plant family also includes members like belladonna that contain atropine. Um, tell us what atropine is and how it can kill. Atropine is something that is produced by plants, and it's likely there as a deterrent to the plant being eaten. So it's in large amount in the berries of the belladonna plant, and obviously the plant's not going to want to have its berries eaten by deer or humans. And it's there as a deterrent, really. It's a very bitter-tasting compound, uh, anybody familiar with quinine in tonic water, um, that's roughly the same chemical family. So you know how bitter that tastes. In terms of what atropine does in the body, when we are deciding to move our arms or legs or walk or run, there are chemical signals that get released by nerves onto the muscles, for example. And those chemical signals have to be broken down. And we get the proper signaling by having chemicals going on to the muscles. What atropine does is goes on to uh, receptors on muscles and blocks the activity of the chemical signals. So you can think about it as a lock and a key. So the chemical would be right. a key. It would normally fit into a lock on the muscle and open it and cause it to contract. Atropine has a fairly similar shape to the normal chemical signaling that the nerves release, but similar to a key that kind of fits in a lock, uh, it can also get stuck in the lock and not only prevent the lock from opening, but it can also prevent the normal correct key from getting in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what atropine does. It goes in and blocks the receptor so we can't get signaling, the normal signaling that would occur. So, for example, in the case of heartbeats, 
one of the chemicals that's important in regulating heartbeat is called acetylcholine. And that's there to slow down the heart. So you can think when you're sitting at home, you've just had a meal, you're relaxing. Acetylcholine is dripped onto the heart, causing the heart to relax and slow down and just become more comfortable. Atropine would go onto the heart and block that so that there's no signal telling the heart to slow down and relax. And so the heart slowly starts building up its speed. Mm -hmm. It becomes faster and faster, and it becomes so fast that it becomes erratic. And this is one of the key symptoms that you see with atropine poisoning, is that the heart starts beating very rapidly, becomes erratic, and eventually just wears out and can't beat any faster and stops altogether. So that's why atropine is really nasty and has been used to kill people, is because it can affect how fast the heart can beat. And it's really obviously important then, like with many of these, it's, it's about the dosage. It's atropine in small amounts with the right medical expertise is useful for controlling heart rates and reducing secretions before surgeries, but obviously it has been used to kill. Okay, that's good backstory. Um, although it seems odd that such a deadly chemical could save lives, um, that, that leads to the story we're getting to. Um, tell us about the Skripal poisoning and what effects they were showing when they made it to hospital and how it confused doctors and what their what the diagnoses were initially and then how they came to get to the place that the uh, Russian developed Novichok was to blame. So I think if we just step back to one of the other aspects of atropine, As you mentioned, it's used in surgeries, and that's because it helps dry up secretions from the saliva glands Mm -hmm. so that we don't get fluid dripping down into the lungs, uh, which can cause problems with pneumonia. And so it's used to dry up the mouth. So when we're thinking about Novichok, that has the opposite actions of uh, atropine. What Novichok does and what all organophosphate nerve agents do is to prevent the normal breakdown of acetylcholine. So acetylcholine is normally there to give a small signal and it has to get broken down very rapidly. It's normally broken down within a few milliseconds of its release. And it's broken down by an enzyme in this case called acetylcholinesterase, which helps to break down the normal nerve transmitter. Novichok prevents that breakdown. And so the signal just keeps accumulating and accumulating. So if you think of a radio where you have a volume control and you can either turn it down or turn it up, Mm -hmm. what Novichok does is just amplifies the signal like crazy. So the volume of signal going onto the various end organs gets higher and higher. We talked about atropine drying up secretions in the mouth so that saliva would be uh, inhibited. With Novichok, the exact opposite happens. Um, Lots of saliva is produced, which uh, so much so that it looks as if the mouth is frothing. Mm. And that was one of the symptoms that was seen by the Skripals is they had lots of frothing saliva. 
Uh, initially, people thought that can be indicative that, of things like opioid overdoses, can't it? Opioid, which was yeah. what was initially suspected oh. um, that the patient uh, that the scripples had been exposed either deliberately by themselves or given some opioids and had taken an overdose. It can also cause problems with the heart. Um, Novichok can start causing secretions not only in the saliva, but we can also get so much fluid that it actually starts building up in the lungs. And fluid is normally there. The lungs have to be kept moist so that they can move and we can get proper gas exchange. But you have to have just the right amount of moisture there. With Novichok, that amount of moisture becomes completely unregulated. Lots of fluid goes into the lungs, and there's sufficient fluid there that people can actually drown in their own fluid, even though they're miles away from water. There's just so much fluid pumped into the lungs. The fluid can start accumulating around the heart, making it hard for the heart to beat properly. And it can also start affecting the brain because the same neurotransmitters that affect the rest of the body are also important in the brain. And the brain can start malfunctioning when the signals are just so um, turned on that there's no chance for anything to slow down. So we get to the point where, and we probably should go back a half a step for those not familiar with the case, but Skripal had been a colonel in Russian military intelligence, the, the GRU. He had uh, been approached and recruited by British intelligence, become a double agent, had been caught, but had been swapped back. So he was living in the United Kingdom with, with his daughter. But obviously, the, the Russian security services were not happy with him being out there and doing this. And yes, yeah, suddenly he, he and his daughter exhibit these symptoms and they present with frothing at the mouth and, and other issues. Um, the medical team is not familiar with the fact at first that he is this potential target of assassination, right? It, that, that's something that is, is useful for somebody to know. On the other hand, there are probably hundreds of patients who come in claiming they've been poisoned for everyone who actually has been poisoned, and that's not initially diagnostic for somebody treating a, a, a trauma case coming in. No, certainly your average uh, emergency room doctor is not going to have a lot of exposure to nerve agents. It's not something that comes up in their regular medical training. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is not clear exactly. Um, you'd go through the normal process of trying to eliminate things. You do lots of blood tests to see if you can figure out what's going on with these patients. But it really comes down to identifying who the individual was. And once it was known that uh, this individual was um, a double agent who had defected from the GRU, that suspicion then arises that maybe they have been poisoned. And when you look at the symptoms, it does become clear that this is very characteristic of nerve agent poisoning typical thing that not only you see with Novichok, but with sarin and VX gas as well, that all have the same kind of symptoms, uh, but the chemistry is slightly different. But 
in terms of what actually happened to the patient, they're all pretty similar. And so once you have an understanding that they may have been poisoned, that really narrows down as to what the poison might be. And once you have that, that brings down that the antidote is going to be atropine. Uh Uh-huh. Because Novichok is there to amplify the amount of neurotransmitter that's present, but we know that atropine blocks the actions of the chemical signaling. Mm-hmm. And so you have two things that are working in the opposite way. And it's true that uh, even soldiers who are going into battle who may be exposed to nerve gas will carry with them uh, an atropine antidote that they can inject into themselves to counteract any nerve agents. Mm-hmm. And patients who have been exposed to nerve gas will be given atropine that will block the actions of the excess neurotransmitter, Mm -hmm. just hopefully giving the body time to slowly break down the Novichok and also the neurotransmitter. And eventually these will be degraded by the body if you can give the body time enough to uh, repair itself. And so atropine in this case is actually an antidote used on its own. It can be a poison, Mm -hmm. but in this case, it works as an antidote to an even deadlier poison. And I will emphasize the slowly and eventually adverbs that you threw in there because his daughter, I believe, was in a coma for about three weeks and then a long recovery. But Sergei himself remained in critical condition and unconscious for more than a month and then a long recovery afterward. It is a long recovery. Certainly, it's not as if you're going to take a pill and you'll be out of the hospital that afternoon. Right. It, right. it takes a long time for the body to recover. And of course, damage has been done to the body during that time as well. So not only are you trying to eliminate the poison, you're also trying to help the body repair and recuperate from being exposed to the toxin. And then to you know close out the case a bit... Once once the doctors were convinced that they had been intentionally poisoned, they did reach out for expertise to the uh, British government laboratory responsible for researching chemical weapons at Porton Down and, and did identify Novichok. But then they also got involved in figuring out who could have done it and how. And sure enough, two Russians had flown in and were caught on closed circuit TV footage spraying liquid nerve agent on his front door. Um, that's a bit of a tell, no matter what they claim later about wanting to just come and visit cathedrals or do some tourism. Mm. Um, having having that footage along with the the medical evidence makes it pretty much a closed case, don't you think? I think it does. Um, there are only certain places that can manufacture toxins like this, and Russia is obviously one of them. And I think... Probably one of the more unfortunate aspects of this case is that they had brought the Novichok to the UK disguised in a bottle of perfume, which they discarded after they had sprayed it on the Skripal's front door. They threw it away into a trash can. Unfortunately, it was picked up by someone who gave it to his girlfriend who was delighted to have a bottle of expensive perfume and 
sprayed it directly onto her skin. Uh, the Skripals obviously had to absorb a small amount from their front door, but right. she absorbed it directly and was also one of the victims who did die from being exposed to Novichok. Which raises the question, was there a security failure in screening at Gatwick Airport because they had a perfume bottle with Novichok? Is there any non-intrusive means of detecting that given the volume of passengers moving through airports? Or is it just one of those one in a billion cases where you have to assume people aren't transporting Novichok on a daily basis? They're not. And of course, you know, as you fly internationally, you go through the uh, duty-free zone where there's perfumes and alcohol that taste there for sale tax-free. And so people are taking bottles of perfume on international flights all the time. Of course. And unless you're specifically looking for it, it's Mm -hmm. really hard to detect. Right on. Well, unfortunately, that is not the only link of the KGB or its successor, the FSB, with poisons internationally. There have been a few cases, I mean, going back decades to 1950s when the Soviet agitator uh, Lev Rebet was sprayed in the face with cyanide mist. We had the case not long after of a KGB de- defector drinking a contaminated cup of coffee and, and dying. And then an attempt to shoot a different Soviet defector with a poison-tipped bullet happened. I believe that was the one concealed in a cigarette pack um, that actually did not happen. But of course... There's a case that interested you in poisons early on, uh, which is linked to the KGB, even though it's primarily a Bulgarian case. And this is the case of Georgi Markov of Bulgaria. Tell us a little bit about Markov and what happened to him in 1978. Markov was uh, a Bulgarian citizen. He was initially fairly high up within the Communist Party. He was a playwright and moved in the top echelons of the Communist Party. At some point, he got disillusioned with communism in his home country and started writing plays that were critical of the Bulgarian government, which obviously didn't uh, enamor him to the ruling classes. And he was advised that the government was coming after him and that he needed to leave the country as quickly as possible. He initially went to Italy and then finally found his way to the UK, where he started working for the BBC, producing radio shows on Radio Free Europe that were broadcast into the Soviet bloc, uh, telling people just how terrible uh, the Soviet government was, although they probably had a fairly good idea that uh, it wasn't the best of situations. Uh, But this regular broadcasting of uh, anti-Soviet propaganda into Bulgaria was not taken too kindly by the Bulgarian government, who probably got in touch with the KGB, likely with Laboratory One that we'd already mentioned, to come up with a way of assassinating Markov and taking him out of the situation. They came up with a a rather intriguing way of getting the poison into Markov. And this was an umbrella. Not just any umbrella, but an umbrella that had been, uh, or 
an air gun that had been disguised in his umbrella. One day when Markov was going to the BBC to record his broadcast, he was waiting at a bus stop and felt a sting on the back of his leg. He turned round and saw a man apologizing, picking up an umbrella from the floor. The man got into a taxi and fled away. Hmm. Markov didn't think much about it at the time, went on to the BBC, recorded his broadcast, and then went home. Once he was home, he started feeling unwell, maybe thinking he'd caught a cold or had eaten something that had disagreed with him, but was not really that concerned. A few hours later, he became very ill. Uh, was taken to hospital. Uh, Again, the medical team were really not sure exactly what was wrong with him. He did recall that he had felt this sharp pain on the back of his leg and was worried that he might have been poisoned and so mentioned that to the hospital staff. Of course, they didn't take uh, much interest in that because poisoning is not something that occurs regularly Mm -hmm. uh, whilst you're waiting at a bus stop. X-rays were taken, nothing appeared on the X-rays, but later it was found that there was a small shadow on one of the X-rays that was taken of his leg. At the time, it was thought that this was just a flaw on the X-rays. It later turned out that there was a small pellet Mm -hmm. that had been shot into the back of his leg. And when you say small, you mean quite small. I mean small. Millimeter size of a pinhead. Wow. Incredibly tiny. So understandable that this person who comes in with these symptoms says, uh, you know, I think I've been assassinated or attempted assassinated. Um, I, I, I thought I felt something in my leg and they look, and even if they see a very small puncture wound, it might look like a small insect bite at worst, but the x-rays don't find anything because it is so small. It's only upon further examination, they even notice this delivery mechanism. And this is, in fact, on an autopsy, Markov does die of uh, the complications. And it's on autopsy that this small particle is found the size of a pinhead. Um, Using high-powered electron microscopes, Mm -hmm. it was seen that there were actually two holes drilled into this little um, bead. And doing the calculations, it was determined just exactly what volume of material could get into this small um, Mm -hmm. pinprick, which limits the amount of things that could really get into it. Um, It's not really big enough to hold bacteria. Um, It's not really even big enough to hold viruses. It has to be a very small amount of chemical. Well, that's very useful then because... First of all, they have a, a complete set of symptoms. They have his medical history upon coming into the hospital. Now they know that it was likely something delivered in an incredibly small uh, vehicle for transmission. Uh, those overlapping circles can't have a lot in that middle zone. So what did they discover or what did they assess caused it? And, and how did that material... Um, how did that poison actually affect the human body, in this case, Markov's body? Given the very small amount of poison that lightly was within the um, 
tiny ball. That there are really only a few toxins that are really that lethal in such small amounts. And one of those is ricin. To determine that it likely was ricin that had been given to Markov, it was the same amount of ricin was actually injected, in this case, into a pig. And the pig developed all the identical symptoms that Mm. Markov had uh, developed. And even though there really isn't definitive evidence that it was ricin, there really isn't anything else that it could be. Mm -hmm. And ricin is really a very nasty chemical. It is effective in very tiny amounts. How does it actually kill? What does it do to the to the body that, that causes those horrible effects? Inside every cell in our body, there is a small piece of machinery called a ribosome, and this is responsible for making every protein in the cell. So, as you know, all our instructions is encoded in our DNA in the nucleus, but that has to be converted into a protein, and the job of the ribosome is to do that. Ricin is what's called a ribosome inactivating protein, which interestingly has the um, abbreviation RIP. Of course. Unfortunately for Markov, (laughs) um, that did not play out very well. Uh, Ricin gets into the cell. It is composed of actually two proteins that are linked together, an A chain and a B chain. Uh, The B chain helps the ricin bind to the surface of the cells and gets it taken up inside the cell. Once in the cell, the A chain will then go and start breaking down the ribosome. And it's interesting in the way in which it works because once it's killed off one ribosome, it can actually go ahead and start killing other ribosomes. So it's not like a bullet Mm -hmm. that just has one target and when it's used, that's it. This actually is a chemical that can kill one ribosome, move on to a next one, and then move on to the next one. So just one molecule of ricin can completely kill a whole cell which is why you don't need very much of it to kill the whole body. Mm. And once all the various cells in the liver, for example, start breaking down, then the whole liver collapses. When cells in the heart start breaking down, the whole heart collapses and no longer functions. But that means it it has to get into the cell to, to start doing that. Is this one of those poisons where there's a difference in the lethality between injection and ingestion, for example? Indeed, because this is a protein, as I mentioned, it works a whole lot better when it's injected, uh, which is why Markov was probably injected with the pellet rather than giving it as a poison in food, which would have needed a lot more of the ricin to get into the body through a food. So the small uh, amount that was put in the pellet was probably sufficient to, well, it was sufficient to kill Markov because it was injected. It probably wouldn't have killed him if he had taken the same amount of ricin in food, for example. Fascinating. And that also helps complete the the assessment that it was ricin because it goes back to that puncture wound and finding the the vehicle for disseminating it. Um, what what was the material of that pellet that was put into his leg? Because it had to be something that was both 
small enough to accomplish its purpose, contain enough ricin to do it, which is not hard, but something that could be drilled at such a small level to allow this material to get out. It's, it's, this is not a simple plan. No, it's not. And it has to be a pellet that was composed of something that would not activate the immune system to try and destroy it. Uh, we have cells in our body that are there to engulf any bacteria and inactivate them. And you don't want that happening to this uh, particle that you're shooting into the leg. And so it's made of a metal called iridium, which is very inert. The body really doesn't recognize it as foreign. Outside the capsule probably was a wax coating hmm. so that none of the ricin actually leaked out. Oh. This was a wax that at normal room temperature was a solid, but once it got into the body, would melt at body temperature, slowly releasing the ricin from the inside of the pellet. Uh, but the pellet itself was made out of a metal that the body just wouldn't recognize. Well, I have something to tell you about the Markov case, and I'm hoping the next time you come to Washington, D.C., uh, we can go take a look at this. The International Spy Museum here in Washington has a display case with a replica of the Markov umbrella in a short story of what happened. And the replica, of course, the umbrella that was used disappeared. It was never found. Presumably, it's at the bottom of the Thames or it's somewhere destroyed. But the main benefactor of the International Spy Museum's artifact collection, uh, someone who had collected many, many such things around the world, had a friend who was a technical operations officer for the KGB back in the day. And he was contracted to build a replica of the Markov umbrella. And it is there on display. And along with the axe that went into Trotsky's head is one of the most popular exhibits there at the Spy Museum. I will have to make sure I see that next time I'm in Washington. As far as I know, it has not been taken out of the display and tested with an iridium capsule containing <laughs> ricin to ensure that it would work the same way, and hopefully it will stay the same way. Uh, like, like atropine, which we discussed earlier, ricin has an emerging positive medical use, doesn't it, involving something with cancerous bladder cells? Most of us, uh, as I mentioned, ricin is made of two different proteins, and most of us have actually ingested a lot of the B protein. It's present in wheat and corn and maize, and so it, on its own, it's not something that's particularly nasty. Ricin has been thought to be useful for cancer cells by directing or helping to direct, in this case, not ricin, but also uh, chemotherapeutic agents towards cancer cells. It's a really efficient way of getting chemicals into a cell. And one of the problems in dealing with cancers is that you want to direct the uh, chemicals treating the cancer only to cancer cells. You don't want them to be taken up by normal healthy tissue. Right, right. And it's been thought that ricin could help direct uh, chemotherapy agents specifically to cancer cells by recognizing particular proteins that are expressed on the surface of cancer cells and not normal healthy cells. It's still something that's in the experimental phase. 
but is certainly a goal of many researchers who are trying to find ways of targeting drugs specifically to cancer cells and not to the normal surrounding healthy tissue. Mm -hmm. And ricin certainly seems to be one way in targeting particular drugs to cancer. Absolutely fascinating. Well, let's hit the other poisoning story that I want to get to. And you alluded to it earlier when you talked about um, a cup of tea in London. So this is a case going back several years to the Pine Bar at the Millennium Hotel in uh, Mayfair in London. And in the afternoon, you have Alexander Litvinenko, uh, formerly of the Russian Security Services, but now living and working in the UK, having tea with two Russians, Andrei Lugovoy and Dmitry Kovtun. And they have some tea. Not long afterwards, uh, Sasha Litvinenko starts feeling differently. Describe what is happening in his body and how that is, is presenting uh, in his feelings and in what his wife and others start seeing. Litvinenko has been poisoned with a radioactive substance called polonium. And most of us are familiar with radiation and protection from radiation. Polonium emits a type of radiation called alpha particles, which in themselves are not particularly dangerous. This is going back to, we've talked about before, how it gets into the body. Mm -hmm. You could rub polonium on your body all day long and the radiation would not get into your body that the skin is thick enough to prevent any damage from okay. getting in it's only when it gets inside the body mm. and that's why it had to be given in a cup of tea right. so that Linvinenko would actually get it into his body mm -hmm. once it's inside his body it starts to be absorbed by his guts it's taken up transported initially to the liver and then in the blood supply throughout the rest of the body. What it does inside the body is something that is really nasty. It's much like a, a wrecking ball inside the cell. It is a large, it's actually a, a helium nucleus that goes around just smashing cells apart. It will go into the nucleus and start smashing up the DNA so that the cells can no longer replicate. One of the interesting things about the intestine is because it's being exposed to food and we're digesting is that the intestine turns over very quickly. So as you're sitting here, the cells of your intestine are completely different from what they were a week ago. It's completely turned over, right. which requires a lot of cell replication mm -hmm. and a lot of DNA replication. And anything that disrupts that is going to cause problems, which is why radiation exposure, typically one of the first tissues that's damaged by radiation is the intestine. So you get problems with diarrhea and vomiting associated with radiation. Radiation will go inside the, the cell, as I say, smashing it apart. It will start causing chemical reactions inside the cell that are going to break it down. And if you can imagine, instead of a subtle poison, uh, for example, which would be Novichok, which has specific um, 
symptoms of excess saliva and foaming at the mouth and heart problems. Problems with polonium are going to affect every cell in the body, and they're going to start shredding every cell from the inside out. And in mm. fact, when they did an autopsy on Litvinenko, all his internal organs were just shredded and beaten to a pulp, essentially. He didn't really have clearly discernible organs that you would expect to see on an autopsy. They'd just been completely demolished and ravaged from the inside out. What's amazing is you've told the story in terms of what we know now, and it all makes such logical sense that there was the tea, he ingested the polonium. Uh, To me, one of the only surprises of the case is that he took three weeks to die. Uh, obviously, he had a very strong, hardy individual that um, took long enough to die that they actually could collect some information and and get get more. But at the time, none of these things that you talked about were known. His symptoms were known, but they weren't they weren't matching up with anything that these doctors had any experience with. Suddenly, you know, it could be that the symptoms he described pointed in one direction. And then all of a sudden his hair starts falling out, which seems to rule out the most likely culprit here to the point that they didn't know about the Millennium Hotel. They were looking at his lunch with uh, with someone else, and maybe that person did something to him. They were looking at his connections to uh, other dissidents in London. They were trying to chase down all kinds of things. But over time, two things did help them. Uh, one was that he did live long enough that he had such a number of symptoms that did point to this catastrophic, as you're calling it, this destruction of all cells you know, from within the body outward uh, from the ingestion. But then you also mentioned the alpha radiation. And what you found was that not only was Litvinenko himself lit up when you, when you tested for alpha radiation... But all around London was a forensic trail because this alpha radiation went wherever Lugavoy and Kovtun went, and you could actually find where they were and when it came in and when it left. And it seemed to trail pretty closely with those two individuals, didn't it? It did. It went all through the uh, Millennium Hotel. Um, I've actually gone and taken tea myself um, at the Pine Bar. Did you take it with any uh, former Russian security agents? Not that I'm aware of. Good choice. Um, So I made sure that was not the case. Um, A lot of the uh, furniture in Covton's um, room at the hotel had to be ripped out um, and taken away and buried Mm. because it was so radioactive. But the trail went as far as identifying the specific seats on the airplanes Mm -hmm. that were taken uh, from London back to Russia. And the seats had to be ripped out of the airplane. They were so radioactive. But clearly, um, that identified who was sitting in that seat. It's remarkable that it seems as if they had no clue just how dangerous this uh, chemical was. Mm-hmm. They had actually, or Covton had brought his son with him um, to London. They were going to see a soccer match between uh, London's uh, soccer club and uh, Russian so- uh, Moscow soccer club mm. and had got his son to shake hands with Litvinenko. 
they seemed completely unaware of just what they had brought, um, which is remarkable that they just had not a clue how dangerous it was and led the police to exactly follow, as you mentioned, the trail all through London to the airport, onto the plane, even to the very seats that they were sitting on all the way back to Moscow. Do I remember hearing or perhaps reading in your work that the, the amount of polonium in his system was something on the order of a million times more than would have been necessary to kill him? Yes, it it was way in excess, which I think goes to argue that uh, Kovtun and Lukovoid really didn't know what they were doing. Right. Had they just used a small amount, Mm -hmm. they probably wouldn't have been detected. Hmm. But they figured, well, if a little bit's good enough, then a lot more is going to do the job even better. Which leads to a fascinating implication for these assassination attempts. And you can... You can go to Markov, you can go to Skripal, you can go to Litvinenko. All of them, it's it's at least plausible that the intention was that these people would die and they would be off the face of the earth for whatever political reasons they had been you know, deemed worthy of assassinating. And no one would know how it happened because the ricin, that pellet and the, the amount of detail that would go into creating it, it was a series of good coincidences for the doctors and the investigators to be able to determine that it was it was ricin. In Litvinenko's case, this is something that had not been seen before. In the case, I mean, it, there are all these times when we look at it and say, perhaps, well, the killers really wanted to send a message that you're going to die painfully if you cross the wrong people. And I come to a different conclusion, which is maybe they thought that these things were severe enough and rare enough that these people would simply die and no one would know how it happened, which leaves even more of a mystery in people's minds. And it's only due to the really good medical work and the really good forensic criminal work that we can tell these stories and know exactly what happened and why. It's certainly true that being able to detect poisons has come a remarkably long way since the early times of people identifying poisons by taste, uh, which was one of the early ways of detecting poisons. Um, we've That's come a, a long way of way doing s- it if you get the wrong one. Uh, we've come a long way since then. It's remarkably difficult to come up with something that is unidentifiable. Um, Novichok, for example, was not known before. It was something that had not really been seen, but yet it was detected, and we were able to identify exactly what it was. Even with the polonium, uh, the radiation, there's very few things that can give that kind of radiation. And so it becomes really difficult to get away with those kind of poisonings anymore. Uh, One wonders whether just uh, hitting them with a car would have been more effective. It seems many of these cases are almost comical in the extravagance to which they've gone to to try and make them 
bizarre in the way in, in which somebody's died. It's almost like a, a James Bond super criminal that is trying to find the most convoluted way of killing someone uh, and ends up not having it work out at all. It's just remarkable. They, they seem so bizarre that anyone would really come up with a thought that you could get away with them. Right. And it is different than many of the other cases you discuss in this great book, A Taste for Poison. You talk about cases that are truly tragic of either people wanting to get rid of someone in their lives and not get caught, which is why you would you would resort to a poison, or perhaps even worse, the cases of uh, the rare medical personnel who decide to start killing their patients and finding a way of putting you know poison into their um, dialysis process or other things like that. And I'm not going to go into all the stories so that people can be interested in the book and, and want, want to get it. But it does lead me to ask you, based on these cases in particular of the, the ricin and the, the polonium and the Novichok, do you suspect there are other such potential poisons that are out there that in five or 10 years, we could be having a conversation about the way that Novichok came up as it has never been used like this. We don't even know that it exists as such um, to be used this way or polonium as well. Uh, are there other such poisons that are virtually undetectable, but could cause lethal effects on the human body that, that simply haven't been, been used that we know of yet? Well, that's the interesting thing is obviously we know about these cases because they were detected. Um, the killers were somewhat identified, even if they were never brought to justice. And so we know about these cases and suspect what went on. Of course, there could be many cases where we simply have no idea that the individual was poisoned and their death was attributed to natural causes, and we would never know that. Um, it is remarkable that some people are dedicating their lives to finding new ways to kill people. Uh, quite depressing that someone would spend their life wanting to do that, but uh, some people do. And undoubtedly, there will be things coming up in the future I suspect that it's something that will not stop anytime soon, that there is still reasons for people to, to murder, for wanting to get rid of wealthy relatives or a, a lover that's no longer wanted or indeed a political opponent that's needed to be uh, removed. So I think it's something that's not going to go away. Poisoning has been around for thousands of years. I don't think it's going to go away. Even the prospect of being detected and caught doesn't seem to stop anybody using it. Right. Uh, there was a case in England that went to trial just uh, a few weeks ago where uh, a doctor had poisoned family members with thallium. Oh. So this is something that's still going on uh, just a few weeks ago. It's going to continue, whether it's going to be something that's seen before or something that's completely unknown at this moment, I, I don't know. But I am sure that something will occur and that people will continue to use poisons. And also fascinating that unlike ancient times, because there are many, many cases in Roman history of poisons being used quite liberally in some periods, uh, but unlike in those times, now there are usually digital footprints as well. 
of somebody who, like you said, maybe it's thallium or maybe it's somebody trying to use strychnine or arsenic and their internet search history shows how to kill someone with arsenic, which is a bit of a tell when it comes to intentions. Um, I think you noted when writing this book, um, it's nice to finally be able to have your published book in hand so that your wife doesn't wonder any longer about all of these scribbled notes about different poisons and their effects on the human body. Yeah, she did have a little concern, uh, especially since I do work in a chemistry laboratory and have access to uh, <laughs> several things um, that I finally did convince her that it was a research yeah. for a book. Well, Neil, we have access now to our chatterbox, which we reach into to grab a random question to ask you to close out our conversation. And the question it has produced for you is, what common misperception about your profession or specialty makes your blood boil? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think one of the things that um, is upsetting me at the moment is the concept of the science. Mm. Science is not something that is really susceptible to a single concept. Um, science doesn't work by consensus. Right. There are lots of different opinions, and I think if we can get people to appreciate that Different viewpoints in science are important. Ultimately, we will get to what the correct uh, aspect of a scientific argument is. But until yeah. we do that, there are, are dissenting opinions. And those dissenting opinions are actually useful because they help move science forward. Mm -hmm. And what I really want people to understand, ultimately from the book as well, is just how remarkable the body is. Um, it works tremendously well for the most part. Obviously, we do have times when it breaks down, but for several decades, it actually serves us terribly well. And we manage to get, like, even when we're exposed to lots of bugs and poisons, cyanide in uh, apple seeds, the body handles it remarkably well. And we do have a, a really good body that is just an amazing component of our lives. Is it is it fair to say that people should not be thinking of science as the answer? People should be thinking of science as the process, the scientific method as the process of getting to those answers. It, it is a process, and certainly history is replete with uh, science that everybody accepted, which eventually got completely turned mm -hmm. on its head when we realized it's not that way at all. And so it is a process that's continually changing and continually evolving, right. getting closer and closer to the truth, but is something that does change with time. Well, Neil, thank you for your work, especially on cystic fibrosis. Thank you for producing a remarkably horrifying and remarkably entertaining simultaneously a book on poisons. And thank you for spending time with us here on the Chatter Podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Go Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.